James chapter 4, starting in verse 13. The last time we gained an understanding of where strife and hostilities come from. And today we're going to see that faith produces humility and dependence on God. Verse 13. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. The title here in my Bible is that faith produces dependence on God. Brothers and sisters, this morning, who directs your life? Is it you? Is it another person? Or is it God? Are you still claiming that you're the master of your own destiny? Or have you given over the reins to the one that you claim to serve? Who here is running from God? Let's start with unbelievers. I remember as an unbeliever, there just was a period of time and years that God would keep putting a strong Christian presence in my life. And I just, there was something in me that was so drawn to it. But the world was also pulling me. I was getting pulled in both directions. And there was many times where I just said, I was interested, but I never took the step until the last time that I finally said to myself, why am I running from God? He's been chasing me all my life, in a loving way, of course. But what about as a believer? Sometimes believers, you know, they, they become believers and they still, in a sense, by their actions, by their behavior, by their lifestyle, are running from God. Even on a smaller scale, my life at home is run by my calendar. If you ask me to do something or if there is an event, I have to say I have to check with my calendar and I have to check with my wife. But my life is run by my calendar. However, the Lord often can and does change my plans. It's not wrong to plan. That's not what James is saying. But is God part of the equation? What about this summer? And this is perfect. Current events, I'm just going to use it and take advantage of it today. Who has plans to go down to the shore, to go on vacation, to have barbecues? Not very much fun in the rain, is it? I have a friend who said uh, seven out of his kids' 20 games, I guess softball or whatever, t-ball, whatever they play, have been canceled out so far because of the rain. How many of you plan to do home improvements this summer? I have to laugh because on the first day of spring this year, my wife and I got up out of bed, looked out the window, and there was a blanket of snow covering the ground. And we kind of snickered to ourselves. You see, we're not going to tell God what to do. He's sovereign. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, right? And the cool thing about my God that I serve, one of the many characteristics that I love about him, he's not driven by popular opinion polls like politicians are. Well, Gabriel goes to God and says, you know what, the people in New Jersey are really unhappy with you right now. Your favorability rating is at 20% because of the rain. Doesn't affect him. God is sovereign. Going back to our attitude. If we had the idea, God, I got a busy summer. I'm going to be gone for the summer. Lord, I'll see you in the fall. Well, not so fast. See, this is why I love when missionaries come to speak. Because 
They have no choice. You saw, you heard. They have no choice but to be totally dependent on God. And why? Because their futures are uncertain. We need to pray for their safety. God forbid they may not be here next year. So that's so cool because missionaries come and they give us a perspective on life. We're so insulated in Western culture. They really know what it means to depend on God. They have to. They have no choice. Verse 14. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow for you, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little, little time and then vanishes away. A vapor, a mist, a fog. In those days, and certainly in our days, the fogs, the low-lying fogs would roll in. There would be a, a precipitation, a, you know, a, a humidity in the air, a, a light fog. And then as soon as the sun comes up, it's gone. It's, it disappears. It's evaporated. What is that a picture of? Well, it tells us that our lives are delicate. Our lives are fleeting. Our lives are transitory. I tell you what, I've been a road cop for 18 years, not a pencil pusher. I've been a road cop for 18 years. And I can tell you that this, I've experienced, experienced this firsthand. I've seen how death, when it comes, is not a respecter of persons. Not that someone's lived a full life and then death takes them. Everybody has a time when they're there to go. We're not determined or we're not guaranteed tomorrow morning, another breath of life, another hour, another minute. Our lives are like a vapor. And if you're here today and you're, you're in your 70s, you've beat the odds. God bless you. <laughs> you know, the average life expectancy of, the, of, of American is like 72, 73, depending on whether you're a male or female. But we're not guaranteed long life. Do we realize how short our lives are? How many have heard the expression, my life is so long. I've been here so long, I just wish it would end. Nobody? Me neither. That'd be ridiculous. But what we do say is, wow, I can't believe it was like it was yesterday. I can tell you that when my wife gave birth, I held my son in my arms. They cleaned him up. They put him in my arms. You know, she pushed out a 10-pound baby boy. She was out. <laughs> so I had him. And we met each other for the first time. He looked up at me, and I looked down at him, and I cried. That was nine years ago. Now that little baby that I held in my arm is this tall, and he's 90 pounds. And when he gets off the bus, I kiss him, and he says, Daddy, wait till the bus passes, because the other kids will see me. <laughs> he's not my fat little squishy baby anymore. He's becoming a, you know, he's becoming an adult at some, at some point. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or do that. I've often heard that from older folks. They'll make plans and they say, Lord willing, or missionaries. It's part of their vernacular. It's part of their speech. Verse 16, but now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. These are those who have no place for God in their lives. Believers, non-believers, it's worse, though, for a believer, and I have to surmise, and I, and I believe it's with good uh, background, that James is speaking to believers here. What did it say in chapter 1? He's speaking to the believers that were scattered abroad. So some of this poison, some of this influence has, get, has crept into the church. He's speaking to them. Any of the following things could derail our lives. Do we have a five-year plan, a ten-year plan, a retirement plan? I've learned to make my plans loosely. 
I do make plans, but you know what? Literally, it's Lord willing. I would have never thought five years ago I'd be up here speaking to you as the senior pastor of this church. He, I had my plans. He decided to change them. And you go with the flow. <laughs> but we've seen the weather. Could be Some things could happen. Death in the family, a health scare, a car crash, a freak accident, marriage, or financial trouble. So I would say that we should plan, but we shouldn't boast because ultimately the future is in God's hands. Verse 17, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So how do we live our lives now? We've all heard of sins of commission. Don't do this, don't do that. Don't murder, don't kill, don't lie, don't, you know, there's a whole host of don'ts. But then there's also the sin of omission. Do this, you know, maintain this. In other words, to him who knows to do God's will but doesn't, there's a sin of omission. You kind of left that out. It was neglected. Or allowing your relationship with God to deteriorate. Or disobeying God's will. Uh, our missionaries today were told by God, this is where you need to be. And they've been there for several years now. And they listen to his voice. But some don't listen to his voice. Now, let me explain something to you because I think it's very important. Some may be saying, oh boy, what if God makes me a missionary to Afghanistan? That doesn't sound like fun. I can tell you that they don't do it grudgingly. You see, the will of God, we really have to do a good job as pastors of explaining it. The will of God is not, hey, I have these great plans for my life, and then if I submit to God, he's going to ruin those plans, and he's going to make my life miserable and make me do something I don't want to do. That's not the will of God. See, the will of God is a living relationship with your creator. The will of God is an honor it's a privilege to serve the living God. You see, it depends on how we're looking at it. We were created. Whenever a, a designer creates a, a machine, he creates it to work on either electricity or a certain fuel, and if you put the wrong thing in it, it makes the machine sick. It gets carbon deposits, it may not run, it may need a tune-up, break the engine down. God has designed us to worship him. God has designed us with a void in our heart, and we try to fill it with stuff and relationships and, and money and, and success, and look at me, and you know what? It still doesn't make us happy. The will of God is a privilege, and it's an honor. Anyone who's serving God and they're doing it right is joyous to serve the Lord. They're not, they consider Afghanistan their home. They're not miserable and saying, oh, gee, I'm counting down the days when I've got to get on that plane again. You see? will of God is a living relationship. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. What about relationships with others? What about ignoring a person who is in need? You know that they need you, and you just, nah, it's going to affect my plans. I can't do that. Not getting involved, not standing up for the innocent, could cause me problems. As long as it doesn't affect me, I don't care. It's not my problem. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. There was a, a brief poem that I read when I did the judges' study. I want to read it again because it was great. It was during uh, World War II. It says, in Germany they came first for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. And they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for me, and by that time there was nobody left to speak up. Chapter 5. We'll go through the first uh, six verses and then we'll close. 
He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He doesn't resist you. Contextually, there was a definite class issue when James was speaking, but we can certainly make an application to our day. James is not condemning all wealthy folks, and neither does the Bible. James is referring to specific complaints here. Three complaints against the wicked and abusive rich, and some of them, again, may have been in the church or been in the church familiar with these type of folks. First complaint, exploiting those that worked for them, and in some cases, not paying them. The laborers had no redress because the courts were corrupt. The wealthy were able to pay off the judges and get a favorable uh, uh, outcome. So the, these people who had no money didn't, there was nothing that they could do. All they could do was cry out to God for help. And James assures them that God hears. The Lord of Sabaoth, I used to think this was the Lord of the Sabbath until I studied it. It's not the Lord of the Sabbath. This word Sabaoth is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew plural of Saba. Saba is army in Hebrew. So Sabaoth denotes armies. So basically, this is the Lord of the, the, of the armies, the, of the heavenly hosts. And if you really understand what this means, if you're messing with God's people, if you're messing with the innocent, if you're trampling the rights and oppressing others, you're going to deal with the Lord of, of hosts. Pretty serious business here. The second complaint, these particular rich lived luxurious, luxuriously, luxuriously and fattened their hearts. They heaped up treasures, excesses over and above what they needed to live. How many have seen the show? I don't know if it's still on. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. My house isn't there, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> but, you know, was it Robin Leach who narrated it? But it gets to the point where it's really decadent. When I was a teen, I did alarms, I did a whole bunch of stuff, but I worked on a house where the guy had a 20-car garage, for, and he had, it was filled with all these exotic cars. Some folks, they have a small family, and the home looks like a hotel. Gold-plated toilets, I don't know what you need that for. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it becomes so excessive. And it, listen, it doesn't mean that rich folks can't have nice stuff. Nobody's saying that. But it's so excessive that it becomes decadent. I look at the, you know, being in law enforcement for so long, human trafficking, where they kidnap young girls in America and sell them overseas. These rich Arab sheikhs, they have, they have literally billions of dollars and they're so bored with their lives, they can have anything that they want so they'll buy another human being. And it's a prize for them to get a Amer young American girl. It's a sick world we live in. As far as I'm concerned, these guys need a little more lead in their diet, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Some people need lead. Romans 13 backs me up on that. What's the world doing about it? Not a whole lot. It's a shame. Luxury and wealth can spoil someone's character. Look at King Solomon. He was a man of God who asked, Lord, 
if I'm going to manage your people, I just need wisdom. And he got wisdom and he got wealth and the wealth ruined this man. Take a good look at the book of Ecclesiastes. It ruined this man. On the other side of the coin, it shows great character when wealthy are not moved by their finances. They don't live like James is talking about. They're generous. They're actually working and using their wealth to further God's kingdom. Now that's impressive because wealth is like a drug. It's intoxicating. And I look at fame too. Everybody wants to be famous. They look at fame and they, they see these you know, teens that are famous and boy, if only I could be like that. And you know what it does? It ruins their lives. And those who claim in Hollywood to be Christian, it's a Christianity that I'm not familiar with and it's certainly not in line with the Bible because it's a drug. Wealth, power, fame is intoxicating. Okay, you have to understand that politics Somebody's been a sen senator for decades that you know they're going to be corrupt because they just have so much power, power at their disposal. The third complaint, he says that they were condemning and murdering the just. They have no ability to resist or get their day in court. It's not uncommon, and it's not uncommon in some of these other countries that these folks, these working class people, because that's all they're good for in that caste, they literally drop dead in the fields. And so they got to move them out of the way so that they can continue harvesting. So these folks may have been worked to death. They may have been starved to death. They had no redress. It was an awful situation. And they do not resist you. They don't have the ability. They don't have the strength. They don't have the, the, the uh, capacity to resist these folks that were oppressing them. Verse 5. It says, you have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. In those days, and in farming communities today, they'll, you'll have the fatted calf. They'll keep feeding it, feeding it, and feeding it, and it gets bigger and bigger, and eventually they slaughter it, and they eat it. But the fatted calf has no idea it's going to be slaughtered and eaten, or it might not eat so much. But all it knows how to do is just keep gorging itself. As long as food is put in front of them, it keeps eating. So he's likening the fatted calf to be slaughtered to these rich folk. They keep engorging themselves with luxury and decadence and depravity, and eventually the Lord's going to deal with them, and it's not going to be pretty. James is warning them what's coming if they don't repent, and that's the key. They need to repent. Everyone is open to repentance. God always allows U-turns, like the, like the saying goes. And what it comes down to really is holding the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. And we saw that in James 2, didn't we? It's a class theme again. It's a caste system. And for some reason, humans like to do it. They like to put somebody down. I've heard the expression, oh, let, let's take it to American society. Well, you better do good in school. You better go to college, because otherwise, all you'll be able to say is, do you want fries with that Happy Meal? I don't like that expression. It's insulting to folks that work at a fast food place. Does that mean that they're any less than we are? Does that mean that we put ourselves and elevate ourselves? You know, I go up to the drive-thru, I say, sir, ma'am, treat them with respect, they're human beings, for heaven's sake. Or trailer park jokes, I don't like to hear that either. So the person can't afford a home. You know, what's the problem? Because they live somewhere that we treat them differently, and we do that in America, we do that here. This is an arrogant part of the country. Or even the migrant workers, you know? Oh, they're good to mow our lawns, and they're good to clean our toilets, and they're good to service our meals, but God forbid we make eye contact with them. Treat them like they're subhumans, man. That's awful. It happens. So it's not just rich and poor. Well, you know, this 
portion of scripture doesn't apply to me because I'm not wealthy. Yes, it does apply to us in our, in our area. I mean, there is an underground caste system that happens in this area, the way we treat people. It's just another way to point the finger at someone else and marginalize them so that we look better. And that's the whole thing. Even gossip, when you gossip and you, you know, a lot of that gossip is originated out of jealousy. There's something you don't like about that person. You may not even know them. But you stir up the tail and you, and you whip it up and you whip it up so that you can marginalize them and that you can look better than them. You get enough people believing that story. Personally, I'd rather hang out with the folks that I just spoke about, that are talked bad about, than snotty, self-righteous, stuck-up people. And those type of people have kids that grow to be snotty and self-righteous, and it isn't right. Three examples of wealth in the ancient world that he uses is garments. If you were wealthy, you, there were certain colors that you could afford because the dyes were very hard to come by. There were certain silks, certain fabrics. And he says, your garments will be moth-eaten. You think that you're wealthy because you have this, they're going to be destroyed. Um, your riches will become rotted. Uh, delicacies, certain things that were imported from other areas were very, very hard to come by. Very expensive, uh, perishable goods, they're going to rot on you. And your precious metals, gold and silver, that was your medium for exchange back then. They'll be corroded. And not that they really corrode, but they're going to lose their value. We even see um, people tell you, buy gold. You know, gold goes up, gold goes down. Yeah, gold is stable, but it also fluctuates. And you can't count on that. By contrast, Jesus spoke about heavenly riches. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither no moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. A little point of interest, and I like to go to the historical side of it because it really makes the Bible come alive. Well, why did James say this? Well, what was going on at the time? After the fall of Jerusalem, and even before, there was a lot of class struggle. And after the fall of Jerusalem, the Romans came in and looted uh, Jerusalem. You know, they attacked people, uh, an, an invading army comes in, and to the victor goes the spoils. So a lot of folks lost their wealth in that time period after the fall of Jerusalem. There was a change in wealth. And you know what? Has there been a change in wealth in our era? Think about today. It's hit all across the board. Middle class folks, upper class folks. I know guys who have deferred compensation lost thousands of dollars. Uh, people whose re retirements are in 401ks lost thousands of dollars. Older folks who can't retire have to go back to work because they lost money. In our economy, you see, and we did this in um, Revelation 18. I just did a real good study in depth about economics and how wealth fluctuates and changes every eight or nine years. Happened under the Clinton administration. It happened between the Bush and Obama administration. It keeps happening. So we think that we're going to put all of our, again, it's not wrong to have wealth, but if we're going to put all our stock in that wealth, I think we could see even today that here today, gone tomorrow. It's gone. Millions of dollars. Folks are losing, right? It's, it's, it's pretty sad. Now, referring back to um, the first block where he talks about your life as it, it's a vapor, understand this, that status doesn't last and it won't compare to eternity. If you're suffering but keeping the faith, it's a temporary light affliction, like the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 
is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It won't compare to the blessings in eternity. Keep the faith. Fight the good fight of faith. If you're on top now and you're abusing your power, understand you have the Lord of Sabaoth to contend with. I like that word. It's my favorite word for the day, Sabaoth. Does this mean that all rich people are evil? No. That's not what James is saying. It's ridiculous. The love of money is the root of evil. You can have a wealthy person who is generous, who is not affected by that wealth, who uses that wealth to further God's kingdom, who's okay. And you can have a middle-class person who their whole lives pursuit is getting it, get rich quick schemes, hitting it rich, trying to be like their friends who are wealthy. You know, all they see in their eyes are dollar signs like the cartoons. That's more sinful than a wealthy person who manage their, manages their money and, and, and shows a generosity. So what we have today, if we take it all into account, is scriptures can be summed up in two points, right? The first point, verses 13 through 17. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. How? By putting him first. You have a planning process, so do I. Make sure God is part of that equation. And don't boast about being the master of your own destiny. I would rather believe and I would rather submit to God because for many years I didn't grow up Christian. I did it my own way. It doesn't get you anywhere, I'll tell you firsthand. And I've done it God's way. And I would never go back. That would be crazy. So put God as the master of your life. Verses 1 through 6 in chapter 5, love your neighbor as yourself by resisting the urge to dominate each other and use each other. Remember, he's speaking to believers. Domination of each other and using each other are things, unfortunately, even today, that believers do to each other, manipulation and so forth. The Bible teaches, number one, how to be in a proper relationship to your creator, to God, and also how to be in a proper relationship with others that are made in his image. So I ask again, knowing that our lives are but a vapor or a mist or a fog that gets evaporated, what are we doing with our lives? Believers, brothers and sisters, what are our goals? Are they godly goals? And you know what? June has been a washed out month. I looked at the forecast, I looked at the skies out there. It is unusual for this month of June to have so much rain. And there's gonna be a lot more before it ends up. And you know what? We're gonna have a lot of time to think about this to think about the Lord, to think about how he controls things, to think about all the plans that we've made for this month that have been washed out. And it's easy to get annoyed with God. It's easy to say, what is he trying to ruin rain on my parade, literally? God knows. Maybe there's a reason for the rain. I don't know. He knows. I don't. But we'll have plenty of time to think about where our lives are and the plans that we've made for this summer. What are our plans for the future? Long-term, and what are they short-term? And is the Lord a part of it? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you.